My name is Aoife Murr and you're listening to the To The Point podcast. First off, do you mind starting yourself off, I guess, by just telling people who might know who you are, just who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Aoife Moore. I'm originally from Derry and now I live in Dublin and I'm a political correspondent for the Irish Examiner newspaper. Mm. And with the Irish Examiner, what would you be doing? So you're obviously, you mentioned you're in Dublin Castle there, you're covering the cabinet announcements. What would Mm -hmm. a day in the life be like? Yeah, well, with COVID, everything's all over the place, but mostly a day in the life is, um, so today, for instance, we had a quite a busy day because cabinet was on. So there's one cabinet meeting per week um, in which the government ministers get together and they decide on different legislation and policies. So today we had the announcement that pints were coming back <laughs> and door pints were returning. So we had the Taoiseach, the Tanisha and the Education Minister, Norma Foley, out today at Dublin Castle to give us briefings on the new legislation and then you go back and you write up obviously everything that happened in the day and explain what it means for people and I think especially in COVID-19 and the pandemic people are really hungry for news I think people who would have maybe ignored the news before maybe not read the newspapers maybe not read the news you can't ignore it now because it affects your life so much so people want to know when they can go back into a pub and they want to know when they can go back into a cinema and when if their kids are going back to school so I think the pandemic has really shown um people how important news is even if you try and ignore it you need to pay attention sometimes to realize when you're going to be allowed to do all the stuff that you want to do again mm. and I'll just do a quick game before I get on to other any other questions just kind mm-hmm. of ease into it um, it's called an opinion on game. I do it all my guests, so I'll do, okay. I'll do it with you as well. Um, I'll give you a few topics, basically, and you just give your opinion or your thoughts on them. So I'll start okay. off with, what is your opinion on the Irish media at the moment? Is it in a good place? Is it in a challenging place? Where is it? Um, I have consistently been impressed with the Irish media through COVID-19. Um, I think especially young journalists, less well-known journalists, have really shone this year. People like Rob O'Hanrahan um, from Virgin Media, Paul Hosford, we also at the Examiner. I think more and more younger journalists are coming through, and I think that's really important. Um, I think that the Irish media for a very long time has not been re- representative of the Irish public, and I think uh, young people especially were kind of forgotten about in the pandemic. And I think, you know, only when journalism actually reflects society will it be, you know, uh, the most progressive and reflective as it can be. I think the Irish media is still the whitest, <laughs> straightest profession that I can think of. It's really not diverse at all. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of one non-white journalist who I would see on a day-to-day basis. So I think we have a long way to go. But I, and I think obviously that newspapers are in a bit of a tough spot at the minute. I think COVID-19 has proved to people how important facts and real trusted news sources are there's no getting away from the fact as well that some of the media really lets us down um i would be one of the harshest critics of the media um when when we deserve it 
Um, I think it can be quite harsh on people if you're not used to it. I think politicians get an incredibly tough time. So do some other people who don't deserve it at all. So, um, yeah, I think like everything else, I think there's good and bad. But I think we have done very well in the pandemic, considering everything that's gone on. What has been your opinion and what has been your thoughts on the government's handling of the pandemic, which you have covered very closely? I think the thing we will remember the most for, unfortunately, is how bad they were at communication. I think even if they had the most perfect policies, which I don't think they did, but even if they did, I am quite certain they would still garbled the message. They have an enormous amount of advisors, actually historically large number of advisors. We are spending millions on salaries and there does not seem to be any kind of bird's eye view in terms of the advisors speaking to each other. I think, you know, a lot of it probably has to do with COVID-19. People aren't in offices together. There's all that. But I think clear, concise communication is essential in the pandemic. And I don't think this government has produced that whatsoever. I think um, they were way too slow on mandatory hotel quarantine. I think the vaccine rollout at the very start was incredibly disappointing. Um, And I think, you know, they've handled this part of the vaccine rollout incredibly well. If I had to give them props for something, I would say that this part of the vaccine rollout has gone so well. You know, they're flying now. But I do think everyone's most remembered kind of image in their mind will be men standing at podiums I don't think um they have done enough to reach out to certain communities I don't think it's been representative enough and then we see that then with you know how young people were treated how pregnant women were treated you know uh, fathers not being allowed in maternity hospitals stuff like that so I think there weren't enough diverse voices at the table and I think it's really reflected in uh government policy and some of the speeches but I think the main thing I would say is that Although I do believe they are really trying, they make very silly mistakes with communication. And I feel like if they could get just get their communication together, they probably wouldn't look as calamitous as they do sometimes. Mm, that's a really interesting take. And would you see, you mentioned communications there, would be communication within their own three-party government as well as communication to the public is poor yeah absolutely so i think like what's key is advisors speaking to each other and people getting a full briefing after something has happened you know Mm. we saw it last week so Catherine martin went on the radio and said that your gp could give you a letter to say that you could have to do indoor dining then ashen smith went on the radio half an hour later and said she was wrong then they had to submit another correction three hours after that say no actually Catherine was right so things like that very very easy mistakes they're making they're kind of like, it reminds me of, you know, in the cartoon when they keep walking under a rake and it keeps hitting them in the face. Like, I feel like that's what this government is like sometimes. And it's not, you know, there's obviously very intelligent people there and like they're paid a lot of money. But I just think if everyone could speak to each other a bit more before they face the media, it would be a lot clearer because sometimes even when the press conference is over and the Taoiseach leaves, there's been points where all the journalists standing in the room look at each other and say, what just happened? You know, it's Mm. not clear to us. And if it's not clear to us, it's not going to be clear to the public because we're the people who has to explain it to the public. And what has been the past year for yourself personally, uh, like living with COVID? Because you've obviously worked with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I have had, um, I'm quite fortunate um, compared to some other people. So I haven't had COVID. um, No one in my immediate family has had COVID, neither have any of my friends. Um, 
So it's quite lucky. I mean, lockdown has been incredibly difficult. Um, I'm a really, really sociable person. So I love being out. Um, but in the, I used to be in the office five days a week. Um, I used to go out every Friday night, go out every Saturday night, <laughs> like always out and about with my friends. Um, so I find that part of it really, really hard. Um, in lockdown, I find myself incredibly bored a lot of the time. And then it is quite stressful. I have a granddad. My granddad's still alive. He's 86. He's in Derry. So I was obviously quite worried about him that he would get COVID, um, which he didn't, thank God. And now he's fully vaccinated. Um, but then there's other parts of it too. It's really stressful. For instance, my dad runs a pub. So my dad lost his job at the start of the pandemic. And that's really tough because, you know, anyone who works in pubs will tell you, like, we're just coming out of the recession. Pubs are just kind of getting up and running again after the hiding they got in uh, 2018 and now we're kind of or 2008 and we're just back sort of getting our stuff or getting ourselves together so you know it is weird when you're a journalist and you're listening to you know the rules and regulations about indoor dining and all I can think is right how is this going to affect my daddy because this is my daddy's livelihood so you kind of have to put the personal to one side um to get through the job but no I uh yeah, I've been quite lucky in terms that I haven't lost anyone close to me and I haven't actually caught COVID either. So knock wood, <laughs> long mm. may continue. I want to talk about your early career. So mm-hmm. when was your first interest? When was that kind of sparkle? When, when did you first feel, I want to be a journalist? I think it was around 16. I mean, it had always kind of, I had always been around journalists just because I come from a campaigning family Um I my family are one of the founding families of the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign in Derry so my uncle was murdered on Bloody Sunday and my cousin founded the campaign um, to get justice for the victims of Bloody Sunday so we were always at protests we were always at marches um, you know we were at you know these and the inquiries and all that so there was always journalists around you know at least once a year um, we would be at a protest and there would always be journalists and tv crews and then when I was around, I was always quite politically aware because of that. And then when I was around 16, um, I was picking my subjects. And I was really good at English. It was actually the only thing I was really good at. And um, around that time, actually, the film Veronica Gearin came out um, about the Sunday Independent journalist who was murdered in 1994. And I just thought... I really didn't want to be a solicitor and I went to a school who really were pushing me to be a solicitor and it just wasn't for me and I thought no actually I'm going to be a journalist I remember watching Veronica Yearn and thinking I could do that <laughs> um and not literally. Uh, I'm quite not literally but yeah like I'm quite I'm good at talking to people and I'm good at English and I'm quite forward um so I thought yeah I'll do that instead so that's kind of how it came about how did you make your first break in the industry? Was it local radio? Was it local paper? How was it? Oh my God, I've taken like every unglamorous job that was offered to me. But um, I think, yeah, I got my first break. Uh, I went to university in Glasgow and I was still in Glasgow when I got a job at a press agency in a wee town in the west coast of Scotland called Coatbridge. Um, it only had six, yeah, six staff um, when I started there. And basically it was all the jobs that the tabloids didn't want to do. They would ask us to go and do them. So it would be, you know, standing at a crime scene for six hours. Um, it would be door knocking 
the families of murder victims. It was going to court to report on footballers who lost their license for speeding, um, all those type of things. But that's kind of where I cut my teeth. And I really enjoyed it. Um, it was mental, but I really enjoyed it. And then eventually then I went to a local paper uh, in the West Coast of Scotland as well called the Clydebank Post. And was there for a couple of years. And that's where I started like local news where you start doing stories about, you know, bus stops and, and um, yeah, post boxes and all the stuff that you have to do at local news. But that's the kind of everyone's journalism journey is usually the same most people start in locals and just work their way up because it's the only way to cut your teeth you know you you really need to write the stories about the bus stops to get the skills together mm. and you feel that it's paid off now that you, you took all the unglamorous <laughs> jobs and now it's paid off yeah like I'm quite I was always really dedicated that I would have done anything uh any job as long as it had something to do with journalism so when I moved to Australia, I became the chief reporter for a magazine about trucks and lorries. Because when I moved to Australia, I couldn't get a job in a newspaper. I didn't know anyone. I didn't understand Australian politics or Australian culture. And I didn't want to, you know, waste my degree, you know, working in a pub or whatever. I was like, right, I'll just take this job. So I worked there for ages, um, writing about, you know, like, chassis and payloads and turning circles on these different lorries and hgvs so yeah it pays off i mean i don't really use the skills that i honed at the truck <laughs> magazine too often now in leinster house but uh it's all you know it all adds up and how long did you spend in australia two years two years mm-hmm. oh you just moved back to ireland then was it yeah i had been away in glasgow um for like six years and then in Australia for two and I was just so ready to come home and then so I just came home then um and moved to Dublin and I started then at the Irish Daily Star covering crime and then it just kind of went from there I went from the Irish Daily Star back to Scotland worked at the Daily Record for a while then back to Dublin worked for Press Association and then ended up with the Examiner. Now how was your time at the Press Association? It was one of the best jobs I've ever had. It is um, absolutely mental. You can cover anything and everything. So, you know, I'm like covered the Pope's visit. I met uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I met Prince Charles and Camilla. Um, I met Sting at one point. <laughs> um, I have been to, you know, every courthouse in Ireland. Um, you know, I went to Brussels. I got sent to Berlin Press Association. Um, I would say they're the biggest news agency in the UK and Ireland and every single newspaper in Ireland pays for their um, copy and pays for their photographs. So it is, it's such a mixed bag. They ha- There's a saying that if you work a year at Press Association, you could work anywhere. And I really believe it to be the truth. Like it is a really hard job, but it's it's so interesting. And uh, I, yeah, I would, can't recommend it more. Then you made the move to the Irish Examiner. Um, mm-hmm. How did you find that move? Hard, um, just because I started three weeks before lockdown. Um, so we just had an election and there was loads of new TDs, mm-hmm. no government. And then uh, we went on the, I got sent to America to do the T-Shicks trip um, to meet President Trump, which was an experience in itself. And then they closed the schools while we were in Washington. Yeah. And by the time I came home, we'd gone into lockdown. 
And then program for government negotiations were going on and I didn't have, you know, the contacts that everyone else had. You know, people who had been uh, in political journalism for years would have these contacts with ministers and their aides and their special advisors and like party people. And I just didn't have any of that because I was so new to the job. Um, so it was tough, especially because you're working from home as well. So you can't really make those relationships too easy. Um but you just get through it. Um, you just keep ringing people <laughs> and don't give them a choice whether to answer or not. Um, so you get through it. But I did find it really difficult at the start. Like I suppose everybody thinks they're always going to get sacked at a new job. But I used to think I was going to get sacked every other day because mm. I was so new and I was finding it so difficult. But yeah, you just get used to it. You just get your own way of working. Um, and then it's it's the best job I've ever had, to be honest. And was the difficulty a lot to do? Was it pressurizing? Was it time consuming? What was it? Yeah, it's so competitive, you know, like political journalism. There's so many political journalists and we're all marking each other. Like every day you live in the fear that the Indo was going to have something that you don't have or the Irish Times mm. is going to have something that you don't have. So you're phoning around um, asking ministers, you know, what happened at this meeting? And then they're telling you stuff and you're like, anything else, anything else? Like you're trying to get every single detail out of them because you live in the fear that someone else might have something. So it's probably the pressure that you put on yourself. Like I put a lot of pressure on myself. And then also this really competitive nature of political journalism that we're all fighting, you know, for every last detail. And you just don't want to get beaten by one of your competitors. How much time would you spend uh, on a usual working day kind of ringing up ministers trying to find out information it just depends so like with cabinets um cabinet meetings are supposed to be confidential but i think that went out the window yeah. like 40 years ago <laughs> um, <laughs> so cabinet is usually on a tuesday so you know after cabinet happens you start phoning around the houses then asking you know what happened and then if someone tells you something interesting you can't just get it from one source you need to phone someone else and ask them well in your opinion, is this what happened? Do you get it firmed up? Um, and then, so that's on a Tuesday, but say Wednesdays would be the parliamentary party meetings from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. So same thing there, just phoning TDs and senators, asking them what happened um, at the parliamentary party meetings. And then if one person said this happened, you need to phone around then and, get an- and find out if another person heard it as well. And so, yeah, a lot of, political journalism is just the relationships that you have with politicians um, and you have to kind of build up your sources and it's not just you know the politicians it's the people who work in the offices and civil servants and everything else so you have to be a pretty decent talker I think to be in political yeah. journalism. And um, when you ring up the politicians do they normally spill or do they bland or like they always do? It just depends like some of them Newer ones used to be a bit afraid. We thought I find that you know, uh, with last year when you were phoning up, you know, just after the February election, you could tell that the newer politicians were a bit like, uh, I don't really know if I'm supposed to be saying this. Um, they're a lot more wary, whereas the older politicians are so used to this now, like they just say, Oh, this is off the record, or this is on the record, and they're happy enough to chat. But not every politician is going to talk to every journalist, like that's why it's so important to build up relationships with them um because I don't expect politicians to trust me right away you know especially they don't know me or anything um and it's not always easy because as you're well aware I don't look or sound like other political correspondents or other politicians so 
you know, it's harder for certain politicians to relate to me. And especially in lockdown, if you're phoning them and you're saying, oh, I'm Aoife from the examiner, why would they bother telling you anything? They don't know who you are. They don't mm. trust you. So it's all about kind of building that trust and everyone would all have, every journalist would all have different sources. I highly doubt that, you know, everyone all has the same sources. That's just not mm. how it works. But do you find, is it a bit of a tomb from like, you might get a story of a politician and they might give you a story or, and you might mm-hmm. give them a bit of a nudge in the paper. Is, is, is the relationship there between the journalists and the media still quite to and from? I don't know. Like, I suppose there's certain things where they'll expect, you know, to be quoted or whatever. So if they put in like a freedom of information request or they get data um, that they hand on to you and it's part of a story they'll expect then that they should be quoted which is fair enough because if their office has done the work you know if they've got the freedom of information um, or they've got the data or whatever it is but no in terms of like um, the kind of it's more just a mutual respect more than anything else um, like I think you need to keep a very firm line um when you're dealing with politicians you know even if you get on the absolute best with them um I don't really think you want to become their friends um Mm. because you get into a kind of a weird um a weird space then so you'd want to keep it as you know professional and kind of strict as possible but I think a lot of it is just mutual respect and like I've had you know politicians I have huge amounts of respect for and then did a story where they got into a bit of trouble or a lot of trouble and um most politicians know that you know it's not personal it's just it's just mm. the job and i think most politicians appreciate that what politicians have you interviewed and met just to give a few names um all, all of them i think um like do you mean like irish politicians or like global politicians and irish politicians uh, global politicians um i interviewed Theresa may when I was in press association um, about Brexit and gave her the cold. Um, <laughs> I went to Washington and Donald Trump told me to shush. Um, and then obviously like Tishik Tanisha, like all the usual heads here. Um, Ursula von der Leyen, she's a really nice lady. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, she isn't as chatty as you think she would be. <laughs> um haven't met Boris I've seen Boris in Brussels uh he's a lot bigger than you think he would be um but I haven't ever interviewed him but yeah Trump was probably the, the most famous one I think and how did you find Trump uh well I didn't think a lot of him before I met him and I thought even less of him <laughs> afterwards he was um an egomaniac he wasn't able to answer any questions because he didn't know the answers he was very arrogant. We asked him about COVID-19 um, canceling the Olympics in Tokyo. And he went into a long spiel about how he used to build buildings um, and how the buildings he built were the most beautiful buildings. Um, don't know what that has to do with the Olympics. Oh, he was saying that Tokyo was a beautiful city with beautiful buildings and then started telling us how beautiful his buildings were. He um, didn't understand what Brexit was. Um, he didn't understand that Ireland was against Brexit. Um, he compared it to the border wall in Mexico. Um, it was incredibly bizarre. I felt quite sorry for Leo Ragger. Leo Ragger was there sitting beside him. And it kind of reminded me of like, you know, when a toddler is learning to speak and it'll say something and you have no idea what it's saying, but the mum will say, 
what he means is that's kind of what it was like. Like Trump would go on these long rambling rants and Leo Rager had to sit there and said, I think what the president means to say is, um, and lucky Leo's, Leo Rager is a quite a good statesman. So he was very diplomatic about it. Um, but yeah, it was quite funny. You could see sometimes he said, oh yeah, in, in one part he said, Trump said that COVID was going to go away. And you could see Leo Varagher's eyes widen, you know, not only as a doctor, but as like a human being. You could see his eyes widen, like, oh my God, what has he just said? But he was very diplomatic about it. And how was the whole experience going into the White House? Um, how did you find it? Yeah, it was insane. Like, you feel really starstruck the entire time that you're there. Um, we were taken into the briefing room, you know, like the, the famous briefing room with a podium and stuff from like the West Wing. And yeah, it's um, yeah. You the whole time you're there, you're totally starstruck, and like the American journalists are there with you, and this is their everyday job. They're there every day, so they're kind of looking at us like we're total darks because we're so excited about um, the White House. But yeah, it's as grand um as you think it would be. The gardens are beautiful. The security is crazy. Um, it has like a full airport security bit before you get in, so you have to take your coat and your shoes and your bag and everything off and then like a sniffer dog a bomb a bomb sniffer dog comes around and snuffs you and snuffs all your stuff and yeah it's it's nuts but it was like it was one of the best experiences I was just a wee bit miffed that it was Trump and not <laughs> someone a bit better and what do you make of Biden as a political correspondent um he wouldn't have been my first choice um but I would say you know, after Trump, I think the thing with Trump is that there was just such a lack of common decency from Trump. And I think if there's anything that Biden has in spades, it's common decency. Um, mm. The man has been through an awful lot um, and has a huge amount of empathy for people. And I think that is a sharp contrast to Donald Trump, who had absolutely no empathy for anyone whatsoever. Um, I think some of Biden's policies... You know, he's not radical enough for me. I would still argue that having children in cages at the border is not something that he should be very proud of. Um, But I do think he's probably the most progressive president they've ever had. He's more progressive than Barack Obama. Um, So, yeah, I think he's and he loves Ireland. So that's the main thing, because as cheesy and stuff as some of the stuff he says is, is, it doesn't bother me because Ireland still benefits. So if he wants to be cheesy and talk about his great great granny and drink pints, let him because you know it's Ireland who gains out of this more than anything else. So that's all that matters to me. How do you see the relationship between Ireland and America at the moment is stronger than it ever has been before? Yeah, I think other than Kennedy, I think this Biden is probably the most Irish, uh, mm. Irish American president they've had. You know, he's very proud of it. Like he's, he said the Brits <laughs> and, you know, he talks about his granny and he quotes Seamus Heaney. So, yeah, I mean, I think he is probably the most uh, Irish American president they've ever had. And I think that's really important. And we've seen the importance of that when it comes to Brexit and Boris Johnson. You know, Biden is not afraid to put the pressure on Boris when it comes to Ireland. And we really need that in our corner because Boris Johnson is not... Um, an honest or truthful negotiator. Um, he walks away from agreements all the time. And I think only with like the clout of America, we could probably be in a far worse place when it comes to Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol if it wasn't for Biden. 
What do you make of um, Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? He is exactly the Prime Minister I thought he would be. <laughs> Which is? I think his he is a bumbling idiot. Um, I think his policies on COVID have been disastrous. Um, I think a lot of people have died unnecessarily. He doesn't understand the North. He doesn't understand the border. He doesn't understand Ireland. He doesn't really want to. Um, he walks away from agreements. He is full of bluff and bluster. And I think he is sending Britain down a very uh, isolated road. They're very inward looking. I think Brexit will, the, the result of Brexit will be a very inward looking um, state. You know, their Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has already brought in, you know, totally draconian uh, legislation on refugees. They've walked away from Brexit. Now they've given an amnesty to British soldiers uh, in the North. And I think the result, they will look back on this and they will regret ever electing Boris Johnson, but they cannot say they didn't know who he was because it was Boris has always been very genuine in who he is and he was elected for who he is and he is governed like Boris Johnson would govern. You mentioned he doesn't understand the North. Um, how have you? What have you made of the North, especially in the past couple of months with new leadership within the DUP and that mess that is mm-hmm. there at the moment? I feel really sorry for um, young working class unionists. Um, I have Protestant friends, and they don't really feel represented. Um, you know, young people in the North, Catholic or Protestant or neither your main concern is jobs and opportunities and housing and the health service and the DUP concern themselves with, you know, arguing over allowing people, you know, to have conversion therapy and standing in the way of a woman's right to choose and and gay marriage and all this. And, you know, that's just not what young people are worried about. And I feel like if they, if there is a case to be made for the union, the DUP are not the people to make a case for it. There are, you know, a million reasons why the North should stay in the union, but the DUP are not the people to articulate it. And I feel like, you know, people my age um, in the unionist community, their parents would have voted for the DUP, no problem. But young people my age are not voting for the DUP. And because they're losing voters, what the DUP do is they slide to the right. They're trying to show up a very right-wing very Christian base and that only works in the short term because those voters aren't there anymore. More and more young people are turning away from you know proper right-wing politics in the north. That green and orange divide is not as bold as it used to be and if you're shoring up your base to have the most you know unionist loyalist base that's not going to do anything for the future of your party because there's no future there. Hmm. But where do you see the DUP in the next 10 years? Do you think they're on the way out or where do you see it? Yeah, I think they'll always have a base of voters. I think they'll always be a very, you know, pro-union voice in the North, but they will not be in the majority in the next election. The consensus, show the, the census is going to show that, the polls already show that, that the DUP will no longer have the majority in the North and it'll split further down you know there'll be people who go further right 
Um, the people who would have voted for the DUP go further right, they go to the TUV, they might go to the UUP. But a lot of people now are sliding towards the Green Party alliance, people before profit, because the green and orange thing just isn't cutting it anymore. And if you have a child on a waiting list or you're waiting on a housing list or whatever it is, you can't eat a flag. And, you know, screaming and shouting about the union and Britain and the North and all the things that the DUP concern themselves about, that is not what concerns people um, day to day. People just want to succeed in life. And the DUP, who championed Brexit, um, which has actively made life har- harder in the North, um, I think will come back and haunt them as well. Hmm. And on a positive note, do you see yourself mm-hmm. continuing on um, as p- being a political correspondent for foreseeable future? Or where do you like to see yourself going? Yeah, forever and ever. I can't picture myself <laughs> doing anything else. Um, really? I'm not good at anything else either. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I love I am such a nerd when it comes to politics. I love politics and I love my job, um, which is quite funny because like my mammy absolutely hates it. She thinks it is the most boring thing in the world. Like I'll be listening to Morning Ireland in the house and she can't even listen to Morning Ireland. She finds that too boring. Um, so yeah, but yeah, this is probably what I'll do forever, I would say. I want to finish off with a quick fire round. Um, mm-hmm. Who is your blog, Who is your favourite broadcaster or journalist? Sarah McInerney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Love Sarah McInerney. Yeah. And would she be someone you look up to? Yeah. She's like cut her teeth um, doing anything and everything. You know, she was with Vincent Brown for years and I just really like her style of interviewing. Um, she's such a forensic interviewer. She always has her facts and figures straight. You know, any politician who has to go on with Sarah McInerney knows um, that they're going to be grilled and they need to have their homework done. And, you know, she never gets flustered. She never gets caught out by anything. She's just a very cool customer and she carries herself that way. And But she doesn't take herself too seriously either. And I just think she's somebody that all journalists, I think, should look up to. Mm. She's just very professional, but um, really approachable as well. And I think she's the best in the business. And you've met her. Yes, she's very nice as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your favorite pastime? Uh, am I allowed to say going to the pub? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah. Now that they're open. Yeah, now they're open. Yeah, probably, you know, being with my friends while they were out uh, at a pub or at a gig or at the beach or something. Um, now we're in the summer. But yeah, I would say just being out with my friends is probably the main thing. Mm. And what's your biggest advice to young journalists coming up to the ranks? Even if you doubt yourself, do it anyway. Um, when you go into the world of work, um, and that's not just in journalism, this is in all things, you will not believe the people <laughs> who have jobs that don't work as hard as you. You will, Any job you will go into in life, you will find that there are people there who are coasting, who mm. are not busting their arse, um, and you will be. Um, so don't doubt yourself. Um, or if you do doubt yourself, go for it anyway. Um, Because the worst thing people can say is no, but at least then you've tried. I would say I have been rejected for about a thousand jobs. Um, I have applied for anything and everything. And I don't take it personally, doesn't take it personally. You just get up and um, get on with it and keep going. So I would say 
feel the fear and do it anyway because it's the only way you're going to get anywhere. On a lighter note, tea or coffee? Coffee. Well, I like them both, but definitely, definitely coffee. I don't think. What type? I would cope. I'm not fancy at all. I just have black coffee with some milk. I don't feel in cappuccinos or lattes or anything. It's just just plain coffee. But do you find it hard not to get sucked in when you're living when you're living in Dublin? No, not really. Like I suppose like all the coffee shops are like really fancy and they all these like different fancy names for the coffees. And I'm always there like a loser, just like just a normal cup of coffee. Um even in the house, like people were like, Oh, do you have a coffee machine? And I was like, No, I have a jar and a spoon. Like <laughs> I really don't take it too seriously at all. Mm. And what's your favorite TV series? Um it's between two, so I would say The Sopranos, mm. and then at the minute, the newer one, Succession, um, which I son, love. Yeah, so Succession is, it's kind of loosely based on the Murdoch family, who owned The Sun and Fox News and Sky, but it's loosely kind of based on, on them, but it's, uh, yeah, it's really, really, really good, but I would say of all time, probably Sopranos. If to have any five dinner guests, dead or alive, who would they be? Christy Moore, the singer. Christy Moore, yeah. Yeah, I think he would have good stories. Um, Blind Boy, the podcaster. Hmm. Um, Countess Markovitz, she'd be a good one. Um, who else? Oh, this is tough. Um, Bernadette Devlin, the civil rights leader um in the north and oh one final one right who do i have i've got four irish people um and muhammad ali i think muhammad ali would be very interesting to me i was really into boxing uh when i was younger because my daddy used to box yeah so i would say muhammad ali who's your favorite boxer at the moment I don't pay any attention now, so I'm not even going <laughs> so I will say I'll say Carl Frampton just because you have mm. to say Carl Frampton. Last question. Describe yourself in three words. Talks too much. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, Diva. Thanks, man. No worries.